chapter 10 last week, so we will be starting in chapter 11, verses 1 through 30. Let me read. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners and it came down to me looking at it closely I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air and I heard a voice saying to me rise Peter kill and eat but I said by no means Lord for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth but the voice answered a second time from heaven what God has made clean do not call common this happened three times and all was drawn up again and to heaven and behold at that very moment three men arrived at the house in which we were left uh, were sent to me from Caesarea and the spirit told me to go with them making no distinction these six brothers also accompanied me and we entered the man's house and he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say send to Joppa and bring Simon who is called Peter he will declare to you a message by which you have saved you will be saved uh, you and your whole household. As they began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as uh, uh, us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, that you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they felt, fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then... To the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists about or also preaching the Lord Jesus and the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number uh, who believed turned to the Lord the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch when he came and saw uh, the grace of God he was uh, glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord in steadfast uh, purpose with steadfast purpose for he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith and a great many people were added to the Lord so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and, and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. The disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea and they did so sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul so Peter now returns uh, from Caesarea back to Jerusalem he's been gone now for who knows how long and he's been around uh, the area 
for a period of time, but now he goes uh, back to Jerusalem, and as soon as he enters into Jerusalem, he falls under the criticism of uh, the circumcision party. Now, we may be wondering what that means, but it basically was, uh, there were Jewish people uh, who believed that, uh, that that when Gentiles converted to Christianity, uh, they had to abide by the Pharisaic laws, and one of those is that the males had to be circumcised, thus called the circumcision party. But he shares with them the vision of the sheet coming down from heaven that he had experienced, and his understanding of it, saying, ultimately, what God has made clean, do not call common. Peter acknowledging that the gospel now is to go forth into the Gentile nations. I love Peter's argument, or the way he concludes his argument when he says this. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? In other words, Peter was convicted that the Lord was doing this, and because it was the Lord's doing, how in the world could he possibly stand against it? We've talked a lot about this over the last couple of weeks, that this is perhaps one of the most important sections of the book of Acts as far as we go, because I would imagine just about all of us, possibly every one of us, has Gentile roots, not Jewish roots. As we said before, that R.C. Sproul says this, this section of the book of Acts is perhaps the most important section of all in this entire book for that very reason. And we've talked about this a lot over the last couple of weeks, and that is how the, the door to heaven has been flung wide open to anyone and everyone, regardless of whether they're Jewish or Gentile or whatever race sex, nationality, age they happen to be to anyone and everyone who acknowledges Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and repents of their sin. You see, what they're trying to do is impose upon these these Gentile converts is possibly they were received into the body, but they were received as if they were second-class citizens. In other words, they were not quite up to snuff. They were welcomed into the church and this, that, and the other, uh, but at the same time, not the same standing as Jewish believers. I just want to say this this morning, and that is that there are no second-class citizens in heaven. Period. Nationality has gone out the window, race has gone out the window, sex has gone out the window, everything in the world that might possibly divide believers is gone completely for good forever. As we said last week, that racism has no place in the church of Jesus Christ, period. None whatsoever. All servants of Christ 
called by him into the same body. We are at the section of the book of Acts where strong persecution of the church begins to fall upon our brothers and sisters. One of the things I hope you've thought about and maybe, maybe contemplated is this. Let's see, God is in control of everything. Therefore, God, in essence, has brought persecution on the church. Why? One of the things I would say is that persecution serves to temper and strengthen the faith of Christians. It's one thing to assent to, to the things of Christ when things are going really well and maybe going really well for a long time. It's a totally different thing when it seems as though everything is coming apart and you're in the midst of crisis after crisis after crisis. I'd imagine that most people in this room probably never have experienced very much persecution because of their faith. And sometimes I think that is, I mean, that certainly is a strength for us, but at the same time, sometimes I think it's maybe a little bit of, puts us in a little bit of a disadvantage because there's a sense in which we can't really understand where people like we were watching on the video this morning actually find themselves. But one of the things I want you to get from all of this is this, is who is the author of what's going on here? God. In other words, there's a sense in which God is using persecution of the church. At least in part to cause, in part, the church to disperse. That they would be about the Great Commission going to the remotest parts of the world. And there's a sense in which they were so resistant to it, I would imagine that God is using the persecution of the church to cause the church to scatter like it's supposed to. I mean, it's so easy for us. You know, it's, it's, so, it's so wonderful to be involved in a church like this where we, we truly love one another and we get together every week and, and, and we're close to people in this room in a way that maybe we've never been close to other people in our whole lifetime. And that's a good thing. But at the same time, there must, in fact, also be a sense of going for every one of us. Your mission field may not be in Uganda, it may not be in China, but you have a mission field. Every one of us does. It involves the people that are around you. People in your neighborhood, people in your family, people that you know, people that you don't know. You know something, every one of us 
should have a reputation in our neighborhood of being very friendly and kind people. Those people who speak to other people first. Those people who don't wait for other people to strike up the conversation. Those people who are willing to help others in need in their neighborhoods. We all have a circle. People that we're acquainted with. We're always meeting new people. But it is interesting, you may not even have thought about this, that God, in fact, is using the persecution of church to force people to do what he told them to do. To go. Some of those began to scatter as a result of it from this text. Some of them went to Phoenicia, others to Cyprus, and some to Antioch. Phoenicia was on the Mediterranean coast to the immediate north of Israel. We know something of the Phoenicians. They were some of those people that caused them a lot of trouble when they first came into the promised land. Tyre and Sidon were Phoenician cities located on the coast. There were Phoenician colleagues all over, scattered all over the Mediterranean coastline, all the way to Africa. Sardinia was a little island uh, in the western Mediterranean, south of Rome. There were Phoenicians who lived there at this time. Cyprus, we know something of Cyprus because we know that Paul and Barnabas were going to go there on their first missionary journey. Antioch. This is what's called Syrian Antioch. There's also Pisidian Antioch. Both of them are located in Asia Minor. that Syrian Antioch would become very important in the development of the early church and missions. Paul would pass through there on, his, on both his second and third missionary journeys to be strengthened, to be encouraged, to be supplied, that sort of thing. It's very hard for us to really relate to people who are enduring persecution because reality is we may be endure a little bit here, there, and the other at the hands of a few folks. And I'm sure maybe there are a few people in here in this room that have, been, have suffered very severe per persecution from, from friends, from family members, from other people.
We live in a land that has given us privileges and, and rights that most people in the history of the world have never, ever known. I mean, there are places in the world today, if you speak the name of Christ, just speaking the name of Christ could put you in jail. Unfortunately, it almost seems like we may be headed more in that direction ourselves. Barnabas is becoming more and more a key figure in the book of Acts. We know him mostly because he accompanied Paul on his first missionary journey. This is how he was first introduced back in Acts chapter 4, verse 36. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet, sold everything that he had and gave it as a gift to the church. Then it would be distributed to those members who were in need. It says a lot about his face from the very get-go. After Paul had, uh, had returned back to Jerusalem after his uh, conversion on the road to Damascus, Barnabas brought him to the apostles. And then eventually we know that he would accompany Paul on his first missionary journey. But there's a sense in which there's a missionary journey that precedes the one that we always consider to be the first missionary journey. <laughs> and that's Paul and, and, and Barnabas going to Tarsus. And then to Antioch. And they stayed there for some time. What were they doing? They were preaching and teaching Christ. Before their technically first missionary journey, as we think of it. God has already paired them together. Now, this Antioch was about 300 miles north of Jerusalem, about 20 miles east of the Mediterranean. At this time, it was the third largest city in the world. It was noted to be a melting or blending pot for five cultures. In other words, five cultures kind of blended together there as one, Greek, Roman, Semitic, which is Jewish, Arab, and Persian. What a better place to go <laughs> to start this missionary movement. It was also noted to be a place dedicated to the pursuit of pleasure. Possibly something like in ancient Las Vegas. Not an easy place to minister. Antioch would play a major role in the church for the next 200 years. Even though we don't hear a whole lot about it. 
actually for as long as four centuries. Some of the most noted preachers in the history of the church. Have you ever heard of a guy named Ignatius? Syrian Antioch. You ever hear of a guy named Theophilus? Syrian Antioch. You ever hear of John Chrysostom? Syrian Antioch. The light of God shining brightly in the darkest of pits in the ancient world. Note here that Paul and Barnabas did not choose the easiest mission field to go to. They chose probably one of the most difficult ones, and we know ultimately it wasn't them doing the choosing, it was God doing the choosing and sending them. For a whole year, they met with the church and they taught a great many people. And it was here in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. Obviously, followers of Christ. Christos meaning anointed which is Greek. It's a blending of Greek and Latin words together. The Greek Christos and the Latin Ian, which means pertaining to. So Christians were those pertaining to Christ. I do want you to know this, that uh, if you look at the Latin, there's actually some... some possibility that this name was coined by unbelievers... Because it could possibly, translated from Latin, be a derogatory name. But lo and behold, here we sit here 2,000 years later and we go by the name of Christian. Tiberius, Claudius, Caesar, Augustus, Germanicus. otherwise known as Claudius, was the Roman emperor at that time. Lo and behold, there were at least two famines during his reign. Rome itself and the surrounding area from 41 to 42 A.D. were a very, very severe famine. Famine hit Judea in 45 A.D., very severe. We understand this, that there's a sense in which every famine or natural kind of appearing catastrophe or whatever is a consequence of mankind's sin and God's judgment upon mankind as a whole because of it. Some people know Rome to be evil. I mean, there certainly was a sense in which Rome was evil, but Rome actually accomplished a lot of things that were beneficial to a whole lot of people. 
they developed a road system like the world had never ever had before where people could travel long distances hundreds of hundreds of miles thousands of miles i would imagine a lot of the trekking that paul and barnabas would do over the you know, at least paul barnabas would go other places but eventually after they separate but i would imagine a lot of it they were using the roman highway to do it <laughs> They also brought some sense of law and order to people that had, in some places, had never, ever had it. Aqueducts. You can still go to places in Europe, and there's still aqueducts that the Romans built there to bring water from the country into the city. They gave us the Julian calendar, which we still use today. They gave us the Roman numerical system, which most of us hate, but we use on occasion, right? <laughs> and you know, I love to build. So one of the things that really I think is cool is they are the ones who invented concrete. I was in Rome many, many years ago, and I had the privilege of going to the Pantheon. Huge building, and it has this dome on top of it, and the dome itself is poured concrete. They also brought sewage and sanitation to many of the cities that never, ever knew anything like that. One of the main things we need to glean from this particular passage is this, is that diaconal ministry has always been a part of the church's ministry. Paul would take that principle and apply it to, to the manner that he conducted himself on his missionary journeys. That one of the things he was doing when he was traveling here, there, and yonder is he was collecting money. to give famine relief to our fellow brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. This is what he wrote. He said, concerning the collection for the saints, on the first day of the week, each of you put something aside, and when I come, I will send, send those whom you credit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Writing to the Corinthian church in Greece years later. He will write this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1-4. through 4. We want you to know about the grace that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Their abundance of joy and extreme poverty uh, have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Can you imagine doing something like that? Have you ever begged for the privilege of giving money to help other people when you were in poverty yourself? What we're talking about here is poor people giving 
to poorer people. I left Springs Church and one of the things I love about it is the the approach to finances that we've always used still today I can stand here and tell you we have never ever in was it 28 years now We've never gotten a bill that we didn't have the money to pay. Ever. Ever. Lori and I have never gone without a paycheck. Ever. Never. People in this church are generous. Not a very big church. We support missionaries. We give money to our presbytery. We give money to our general assembly. Paul is encouraging free will offerings in the name of Christ for the glory of Christ. From the poor people to those who are poorer than they are. Not so many years ago, we had the great privilege of hosting Sam and Zoe Kasuli. Raise your hand if you remember that. Wasn't it a treat? To be able to meet these Africans that we support in Uganda. And Dick and Barb were the ones who arranged all that. So thank you to you guys too. But it was so, it was so neat to have Sam and Zoe come here to see us. Instead of us going over there to see them. That when I heard they were coming, I had a concern. And the concern was they were going to see how we live compared to how they live. And they were going to judge us because of it. That they would conclude, how in the world can you live the lavish life that you live while we very often hardly have anything to eat? But Zoe shocked me. And it takes a lot to shock me. She looked at me and she said, you guys must love us a lot. And it's not what I expected to hear. I'm thinking, why in the world would she say that? She said this. Because you are willing to leave a place like this to come to a place like Uganda. For us. Cool.
super cool. You know, we've talked a lot about this over the weeks, and I mean, you do. And it's not, not just this blanket thing, but you do. You bump into people there, there's just this joy that they have that you very rarely find anything that comes close to it in American Christians. It's this joy that just bubbles out of them in every direction. Do we have that kind of joy? Or is there a sense in which we've become victims of our possessions? I know there are people in this room that maybe go without a meal every now and then, or maybe in their lifetime they've spent a few nights without a place to sleep and stuff like that. But, you know, what's commonplace in so many places in the world today are things that most of us will never experience in our entire lifetime. Let me tell you, these places like Uganda are ripe for the gospel. Let me tell you, when they hear the message of Jesus Christ, it is so liberating to them because they have, there's a sense in which the world has held them in bondage. Because Africa has been considered by m- many people the armpit of the world for a long time. But they find such freedom and such joy in Christ. I want to remind us of a couple of things this morning, and one of those is the basic principle, and that is all that stuff that you call yours, it's not. None of it. You don't own anything. Everything that you call your own is God's stuff that he's entrusted you with. To provide for you, yes. But at the same time, to spread grace through this world. The reality is this, is the vast majority of us have far more than we really need. We're spoiled brats. We're used to the good old easy life. We freak out if we have a hurricane and we lose electricity for one day. As if the world was coming to an end. We're talking about people who've never even had electricity for one day in their whole lifetime. God has graciously given to us Everything that we have, everything that we need. The only thing he asks of us is that we be gracious as well. That we help others 
who need what we have to offer. Now, very often we develop the mentality, you know, I worked really hard all my life to gain everything I did. I, I, I scrimped, I saved, I worked my tail off, you know, I worked my fingers to the bone and this, that, and the other. And therefore, what is mine is mine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But let me tell you something, you're crazy if you think you work any harder than a lot of the people we're talking about. We have a lot to show for it. Very often they have really nothing to show for it. We appreciate our deacons very much. We are a Presbyterian church, which emphasizes, in a sense, the role of elders. Presbyteros means elder. But I think sometimes people look upon the office of deacon as a lesser office, etc., 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 not so important, not so critical, this, that, and the other. But what I would tell you is that is a lie from the pit of hell. I would be so bold to say to you this morning that there's a sense in which the deacons are more important, not less. And we have some great guys who do our diaconal work. But let me tell you something. It's not up to them to do all the work. It's up to them to maybe manage and do this, that, and the other, and whatever, but to give us opportunities also to join in this kind of stuff. You know, the first missionary the trip that Lori and I took was really a diaconal missionary trip. The only thing I did was lay bricks for two weeks. Now, Walter and I and Steve Johnson, if you remember, remember Steve Johnson, and a couple of other guys, we went and we laid the bricks to form the foundation for the church that's on the hill in Bustora now. There's a place for that kind of thing. And, and, and the mission trips that we took to Honduras, we were doing the same kind of thing. We helped build a kitchen. I had a pastor here locally basically condemning the church because we went there to do that kind of thing. That it wasn't to, you know, stand on the street corner and evangelize people and do that. Well, I'm telling you, there's a place for that, but there's also a place for the other. Why? Because it's biblical. So what opportunities are you going to have this week to be a deacon? You have some, I guarantee you. But what are you going to do? It's up to you.